I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas on Violence and Religion. Man is essentially the species that can destroy itself through its own violence, violence between individuals and communities. And the religion is fundamentally the way human beings deal with their own violence. Last December, in a ceremony in Paris, French scholar René Girard joined the ranks of the 40 immortals, so-called, who comprise the august Académie Française. His election to this venerable pantheon of French letters, established by Cardinal Richelieu in 1634, was a public recognition of what his many followers have long claimed, that René Girard is one of the fundamental thinkers of our time. His stature, in my mind, is of someone like Freud or Nietzsche or Marx. That is to say, someone who changes, really, the way we think. He's gotten the way that culture works. He's gotten the mechanism. He understands what's going on that produces culture as we understand it. René Girard is a literary critic whose studies began with the modern novel and eventually ranged over mythology, ritual, classical tragedy, and the Bible. Some of his readers think that he has unlocked the meaning of culture itself. Five years ago, David Cayley profiled René Girard for ideas. Last spring, the organization that grew out of Girard's work, the Colloquium on Violence and Religion, met for the first time in Canada, at St. Paul University in Ottawa. David Cayley was there to continue his investigation of the ideas and the impact of René Girard. One of the ways of assessing a thinker is by his or her influence. Is the thought fruitful? Can it be taken up and applied in new contexts by others? In the case of René Girard, the answer must be an emphatic yes. Scholars building on Girard's insights have done original work in fields as diverse as theology, anthropology, economics, and literary studies. People working in practical fields, from politics and marketing to criminal justice and conflict mediation, also testify to the helpfulness of Girard's ideas. Many of these people come together once a year for the meeting of the Colloquium on Violence and Religion. Among them, at this year's meeting at St. Paul University in Ottawa, was Sandor Goodhart, the current president of the colloquium, and a professor of English and Jewish studies at Purdue University. He's known Girard, first as his student, and then as his friend, for more than 30 years. I asked him for the secret of Girard's influence. The Midas touch. <laughs> we used to say in the classroom, anything that we would bring to him, he would have a comment on it, and suddenly the whole thing would look different. It would turn to gold. You know, I remember the first time I heard Rene speak, uh, I walked into a lecture that was billed as uh, literature, myth, and prophecy. And I figured this has got to be interesting. You know, we have this Frenchman who's just come to the University of Buffalo, SUNY Buffalo, where I was a graduate student, and want to hear what this man has to say. And he walks and says, human beings fight not because they're different, but because they're the same. 
And with that one sentence, he blew me away because, you know, what, what had we been saying? People fight because they're different, you know? And he said, no, it's not because if they were different, they wouldn't need to fight. It's because they're the same and because in their attempt to assert difference, they've made themselves enemy twins. And somehow this all involves ritual and all involves sacrifice. There were so many sparks flying. And it was this Midas, uh, King Midas effect, this effect of, of coming to something that we all knew, we all talked about, and he has a slightly new angle, and suddenly the whole thing becomes clear. The idea that astonished Sandy Goodhart many years ago is one of the central insights of what René Girard calls the mimetic theory. It holds that our desires are not original, but copied, hence mimetic. People fight because they're the same and they become the same when their desires settle on the same objects. We learn by imitation and desire what others desire, for better and for worse. Wolfgang Palliver is a professor of theology at the University of Innsbruck in Austria, where he teaches this theory to new students. I start with mimetic relationships, and one can easily uh, show how we need each other. So who would be able to say a word without learning language by imitation? Who would become a human being, meaning able to think, to speak, to develop in a human way without relating to others? So I usually use uh, an old saying of an old German Jesuit, Oswald von Nelbreuning, who says, in order to develop spirit, you need to catch fire from someone. Spirit is ignited by spirit. And that's a mimetic concept. And then focus in a second step how easily this very positive basement of human relationships can go in a bad direction when we get envious, when we develop jealousy, when we want to have the same position, the same girl or the same boy. And young students understand that immediately. Then, then I talk about advertisement. And, and that catches them immediately because I said, well, do not listen too much to theologians and philosophers who tell you something about anthropology and human beings, which fits to their ideologies. Look at the people who are responsible for branding, for commercials. They have to understand human beings quite well because they make money by understanding the core of human beings better. So look at advertisements, look at uh, TV spots. 90% of them are unconsciously or non-consciously applying mimetic theory. And they get that easily because it is like that. Here's Colloquium on Violence and Religion President Sandy Goodhart again. René had this idea about imitative desire uh, way back these days in the 60s. And he began with this notion that desire is borrowed. You know, we, we tend to think that desire arises from something external to me, the object that's outside of me, or it comes from an inspiration inside of me. And René's idea was that I borrow the desires from someone else. I, I desire what you desire. Where does this start? It starts on, for us as individuals. When we're, when we're young, we, we desire what our family desires. If you your father owns a Buick, it's no great revelation that you and you grow up desiring a Buick, right? Because that you desire what your father desires. But when you say this to people, that their desire is not 
original with them and does not come from the object but is borrowed, people don't want to hear it. They protest it. It feels uncomfortable. They say, that can't be true. But at the same time, the protest speaks louder than the objection. And there's a way in which one has the feeling that they recognize that this is true and, and it's a truth that they'd rather not hear you say at that moment. Mimetic theory provokes resistance, Sandy Goodhart says. On one level, it's obvious enough. In the age of marketing, as Wolfgang Palaver said a moment ago, it's not hard to see that desire is contagious. But the mimetic theory still challenges a widely held belief that one can be original, self-made, the author of one's own being. René Girard threw down this gauntlet in his very first book. In English, it was published as Deceit, Desire and the Novel, but the French title is more telling. Girard called his book Mensonge Romantique et Vérité Romanesque, roughly The Lie of Romanticism, The Truth of the Novel. Romanticism, he argued, had fostered the idea that each of us possesses an inner core of authenticity. But in the greatest novelists, his examples are Cervantes, Stendhal, Flaubert, Dostoevsky, and Proust, this idea is exposed and demystified. People are shown as always trying, in effect, to borrow one another's being. What is original about us, René Girard says, is imitation. Most imitation is spontaneous. The idea that the more spontaneous the behavior, the less mimetic it is, is false. That we are spontaneously mimetic because that's what we've learned from our mothers from the beginning, you know. If you pull your tongue at a child right after his birth, he will pull his tongue at you. There is a guy at the University of Washington that has proved that with countless experiments, you know. Imitation is present at birth and needs no consciousness. That human beings are fundamentally mimetic is the first of René Girard's great ideas. Two others follow, says Sandy Goodhart. The second is that society is built on sacrifice. Our power of imitation is so great, according to Girard, that we can easily come to want the same things. Society must therefore find some way of controlling the destructive competition that would otherwise result. This mechanism is a sacrifice in which all desires are aligned together. Inevitably, mimetic desire leads to conflict. And at that moment, if left unchecked, presumably we, we would move to a situation of the war of all against all, what Hobbes describes as the war of all against all. Rene argues that all of culture is organized around preventing that war of all against all, which is the inevitable conflict of mimetic desire unchecked. So what he's offering in now in this second stage is a theory of culture. He comes upon the idea that all of culture is organized around sacrifice and around the sacrificial control of mimetic desire. Remember I said mimetic desire is controlled. Okay, it's controlled through sacrifice. And how is sacrifice organized? Sacrifice is organized, and here's maybe the most astounding idea he has, around lynching. You know, he, I, I asked him once where he got this idea. Did he read it somewhere? And he says, no, I, I came to this country and I noticed 
lynching. I noticed they were lynching people in the South. And it suddenly occurred to me that here was the origin of culture itself. That in some way, all of culture is organized around the unanimous expulsion of a collective victim. That someone who has become the enemy twin of everyone in the community, but whom I believe to be absolutely different from myself. So how do we get to the situation? People begin to, they, they begin in, in a differential relationship. They move from difference to the breakdown of difference into violence, and they begin desiring what each other desires, and that leads to conflict. If left unchecked, that leads to the potential for lynching, and it leads to this potential of a war of all against all. Suddenly, at some moment, just before the war of all against all devastates the community, the smallest difference, you know, hair length, skin color, shoe size, <laughs> stature, height, becomes absolute. And those minimal, arbitrary, small differences suddenly act as a kind of new differential feature which says this guy or this woman or this individual did it and everyone else now moves from the war of all against all to the war of all against one. And at that paroxysmic moment, he talks about paroxysm, and, and he speaks of this as a paroxysmic moment, there's a kind of galvanizing that takes place of the energy of the community in this effort. As we know from, you know from studies, mob violence is hard to resist. Everyone unanimously turns against this victim, and suddenly the violence of everyone against everyone else becomes the violence of all against one, and that violence is released in the killing of that victim. And so suddenly peace appears. And the first distinction in culture is peace now, violence a moment ago. And so ritual then gets invented as a commemoration of that sacrificial crisis which led to the rebirth of culture itself. Ritual being what we'll do next year to reenact this crisis up to a certain point to derive from it as much as we can its beneficial effects. So he says something like this is the or logic of all culture. And at the heart of this or logic of all culture, the sacrificial logic, this scapegoat logic, is a substitution. Because it's a substitution of the enemy that I have in my experience with everyone else's enemy. So it becomes one unique enemy. So it's a logic of substitution at the heart of culture here for him. The ideas that Sandy Goodhart distills here comprise Girard's second great book, violence and the sacred. There, Girard argues that all mythology discloses, but also disguises, a process of scapegoating. Through a substitute victim, in whom all fears and hopes merge, cultures maintain their peace, their order, and their boundaries. Take the familiar story of Oedipus, the king who has supposedly killed his father and slept with his mother. Even Freud believes the accusation against Oedipus, though it is no more than the commonest schoolyard taunt. But from Girard's point of view, Oedipus bears all the marks of the substitute victim, whose expulsion will end the plague and disorder in Thebes. Religion, Girard concluded, is not originally a cosmological theory or a metaphysical speculation, but rather a way of controlling violence. The main mistake about the Enlightenment theory of religion on which our sciences are dependent today and so forth is to believe that religion is primarily an intellectual 
explanation of the world. This is the old Auguste Comte view. There are three stages of explanations of the universe. First one is religion, completely stupid. Second one is philosophy, pretty stupid, but a little better. And the third one in 19th century science, which is absolute truth. Finally, you know, no more problems and that sort of thing. This is a totally wrong view of religion. Archaic religions have nothing to do with gods. They have to do with two institutions, sacrifice and prohibitions. And prohibitions and sacrifice are indispensable to the survival of mankind, which is the justification of religion. The existence of humanity is dependent on them. Therefore, they are not negative. And then if you look at the history of this religion, you can always see that the victory is not definitive, but they are all victories over violence. And the sacrifices are becoming less and less violent. And the type of culture they create is becoming less violent. So it is impossible to uh, view them negatively. Sacrifice, in Girard's view, works homeopathically, or like a vaccination. The killing or expulsion of the substitute victim prevents much worse violence. And the dosage, over time, tends to decrease. Human sacrifice yields to animal sacrifice. And myth yields to ancient Greek tragedy, where sacrifice is represented rather than actually performed. I think that when Aristotle talks about catharsis for tragedy, tragedy is nothing but recounting a myth. And if you recount a myth within a force and power of conviction, you make it present again. Therefore, the genius of tragedy is to be a real sacrifice without death, where you don't kill the victim. And you must not even show the killing of the victim. That was the rule of Greek tragedy. You see it, the Bacchae, for instance, they never show you. The Bacchae is the most perfect tragedy from an anthropological viewpoint because it has a real lynching. But this lynching is not shown on the scene, which would be terrifying. It's recounted by someone. Therefore, the recounting, if the recounting is good enough, it creates emotion similar to the doing, but without death. And that's what Aristotle calls catharsis. He uses the word of Greek religion. The effect of religion which is sought after, which is the effect of sacrifice, is catharsis. Purification, purgation of what? Passions. You make your passions so much better, so much quieter, therefore, if you attend a tragic show that it is that religious medicine that you want. And at its highest, which might be Greek tragedy, you don't kill anybody. Greek tragedy replaced sacrifices with stories of sacrifice, René Girard says. But the Greeks did not, he goes on to say, actually expose the mechanism of the substitute victim. No one was killed on stage, but neither did anyone openly question the guilt of Oedipus. It's only the Hebrew scriptures, Shirar says, that reveal the innocence of the surrogate victim. And this is his third great idea, that it is the unique genius of biblical religion to expose and eventually overcome scapegoating. 
For Girard, as a Christian, this overcoming completes itself in the Gospels, where Jesus is presented not only as the purely innocent victim of a bloodthirsty mob, but also as the final sacrifice, the sacrifice that ends sacrifice. But the process begins in the Hebrew Bible with Abraham, who sacrifices a ram in place of his son, with the prophets who announce that God is uninterested in sacrifice altogether, and with the Psalms, which frequently take the point of view of a victim beset with enemies. It's a victim at the center that speaks. Therefore, it's the reversal of myth completely, in the same way that the Gospels are. And the victim at the center is complaining about uh, being lynched, and ultimately we don't know why the victim is lynched. There's no need for explanation. That's a most human gesture. I define the Psalms as the first text in which the victim speaks instead of the mob, in which the victim speaks about the mob instead of the mob refusing to speak about the victim. The difference is that uh, in biblical texts we are aware the victim is innocent. But myths look beautiful and so forth because the victim is guilty. Therefore, it's only the point of view of the mob that the myth gives you. And we all believe in the point of view of the mob. The Psalms are generally thought of as songs of praise, and whole books have been written on them without so much as a reference to the extraordinary prevalence of enemies in their pages. But approximately half of them, Girard says, speak at some point from the point of view of a victim. A number are remarkably explicit, like Psalm 32, which says, I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. And this is what is revolutionary about the Bible, according to Girard. It unveils, and by unveiling, disables the very basis of all previous culture, the containment of violence by sacrifice. What follows, to make a long story very short, is the modern world. Sensitive to victims, but also subject to epidemic, uncontrolled violence. All modern persons, in Girard's estimation, are children of the Bible. For him, the Bible is, as Northrop Fry once said, the rock from which we were hewn. It's a view that sets Girard at odds with much of contemporary thought, which assumes either that we have left religion behind altogether, or that it has become a purely private matter. Girard's insistence that the Judeo-Christian revelation is the foundation of our civilization is one of the things that endears him to Gil Bailey. Bailey is one of the founding members of the Colloquium on Violence and Religion and a longtime friend and admirer of René Girard's. He and Girard met in the 1980s in Sonoma, California, where Bailey ran a small institute that supported his work as an independent teacher. There was a conference being held in the town where I lived, and the organizer of the conference said to me, he knew I had an interest in Girard. I, at, when I was re first started reading Girard, I didn't know if he was dead or alive. I had no idea where he was. I didn't realize he was two hours down the road at Stanford University. So I got a phone call, and, and he, my friend said, look, we're going to have this conference. 
and some biblical scholars have invited uh, Gerard to come up and and spend a day with them talking about the implication of his work for biblical studies. And he said, I don't have a place to hold this meeting. Could we hold it in your office? I almost fell out of my chair. I mean, if you had asked me then if there's one person in the world that I would like to meet, it would have been Rene Girard. And he was coming to spend a day in my office. I just couldn't believe it. I mean, if, you have to believe in providence here. Anyway, uh, he came, and he gave a marvelous opening presentation. Then we uh, spent the day in conversation. The opening presentation was so powerful, at the end of it, uh, one of the biblical scholars very timidly raised his hand and said, uh, Professor Gerard, uh, from what you just said, it, you know, you would almost get the impression that, that, you, that, that you feel that the biblical literature is categorically superior to other literature in terms of its revelatory power. But you're a Stanford professor. You don't believe that, do you? And he said, categorically. And there wasn't a, it wasn't a biblical scholar in the room that would have said that, you see what I mean? Absolutely. In terms of its revelatory power, in terms of revealing what no other text of equal antiquity reveals, it's categorically superior, he said. Well, that was a wonderful conversation starter, you know, and so the whole rest of the day, it was a lot of give and take, and at the end, somebody said, well, this is all completely overwhelming and uh, you know, and so we're not exactly sure how to uh, assimilate it. What are we going to do? And uh, Rene uh, sat with that question for a minute, and he said, well, I don't know. We're all called to different things, you know. But I think we should all begin with personal sanctity. Personal sanctity. And I, I said to him afterwards, I said, you use the S word right there in front of those biblical scholars. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew uh, right instantly those two things. I knew I can trust this guy. You know, he's first of all, he's an independent thinker. He's enormously erudite. I've been in seminars with him every two weeks for 20 years. And it, he often just takes my breath away with the scope of his erudition and his, the penetration of his mind. I mean, it's really extraordinary. So um, those things are very important, but those two answers to those two questions, his unhesitating uh, commitment to the uniqueness of the biblical text and his very humble sense that none of these things are really going to have consequence in our lives and in our world unless they produce a conversion of the heart. René Girard believes, as Gil Bailey has related, that the Bible offers a unique and irreplaceable revelation. But this is not at all a sectarian claim of the my religion is better than your religion type. Girard is essentially a critic, an interpreter of texts, and he rests his claim on the biblical text itself. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says that he is revealing things hidden since the foundation of the world. Girard has used this expression as the title of one of his many books and he believes it to be quite literally true. For him, what begins in the Hebrew Scriptures and culminates in the New Testament is the unlocking of the hidden mechanism by which all previous cultures had maintained peace and order, the scapegoat. The devil, Jesus says, was a murderer from the beginning. And understanding this, for Shechar, 
explains not just the biblical text, but also the civilization created by those who read and believed it. But today, Gil Bailey says, we have turned our backs on this revelation, and so lost the thread of our own history. The very idea of history is a biblical idea. History has a history. It begins with Abraham, and it presupposes a destiny. It has a beginning and an end. It has, so the Jews, in a sense, invented history, or they discovered that something was happening in history. They discovered or were discovered by a God who they encounter not primarily in ritual settings, but in historical exigencies. So on the journey, so in a sense, to even think in historical terms is to be a child of the Bible, is to be a son or daughter of Abraham. So that's just the biblical background. Well, we have gotten lost because when the, when the Enlightenment thinkers said, well, it's about rationality, replacing irrationality, which was just another word for religion and so on and so forth, and peace replacing war and blah, blah, blah. It was just too superficial. It was a kind of biblical insight, but it wasn't uh, robust enough to sustain a real analysis. And since that's collapsed, there's less and less of a sense of history. That's what postmodernity is. It's just, uh, it's just this sort of swirling montage of episodic things. Nothing holds together, you know. And no one, there's no this fear of uh, uh, some kind of uh, hegemonic uh, narrative that would be the dominant narrative, and you must not have one of those, and so on. Anyway, I don't want to go sounding like an academic, which I'm not. But I think Renee's work comes in there to say, yes, there is something happening in history. And as embarrassing as it might be to you Westerners, it has to do with the religion that helped bring into existence the most powerful culture in the history of the world, uh, namely Western culture. And the misunderstanding of that religion, Judeo-Christianity, the misunderstanding of that religious impulse and the and the willingness to uh, abandon it is coincident with the internal demise of this most powerful culture in the history of the world. The moral collapse from within, its loss of its own historical self-confidence, and all of the things that you see working themselves out in Western culture today. So Rene comes in and says, no, there is something happening in history. And in order to understand it, one of the passages I quote all the time is where Rene says, the refusal to glance in the only direction where truth can be found still dominates intellectual life. That is to say, intellectual life is still dominated by the idea that biblical thought is passe, that it's not intellectually respectable, that it has nothing to offer the contemporary crisis. And Rene has almost single-handedly fought that tide and said, no, no, the biblical tradition is a record of a cultural revolution in human self-understanding that is the driving force in human history. And it has to do with the revelation of the innocence of the victim that happens in the center of the Christian New Testament and the outworking of that revelation for cultures which have always depended on the galvanizing power of unanimity which comes together against the victim. 
So what is Gerard's great contribution? It is to get our attention back to where it belongs in terms of retrieving a sense of what is happening in history. Listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius Satellite Radio. Our subject is the thought of the French scholar René Girard and the organization to which his thought gave rise, the Colloquium on Violence and Religion. The Colloquium met earlier this year at St. Paul University in Ottawa. David Cayley was there. have tried to do so far in this program is to provide an introduction, all too brief, I'm sure, to the thought of René Girard. I'll have more to say in a second program about Girard's interpretation of the Bible and his impact on theology. But in what remains of this program, I want to look at Girard's influence in other fields. One of the striking features of the meeting of the Colloquium on Violence and Religion in Ottawa was its diversity. The university people who were there came from many fields. Musicology, media studies, literature, theology, political science. And the many non-academic participants were equally varied. There were lawyers, teachers, clergy, people involved in criminal justice, and even a few, I was gratified to note, drawn there by having heard René Chichard on ideas. Out of this interesting patchwork, I plucked Richard McGuigan, a management consultant from Victoria specializing in mediation and conflict resolution. In recent years, he told me, he has concentrated on disputes in the West Coast fishery, and he has found that René Girard's ideas about mimetic rivalry often help to clarify what is going on. You might desire something that I have, and that's just the whole notion of mimetic desire. You're borrowing my desire because of your perception of what I get from having the object. And at the same time, we can get into a mimetic rivalry where I'm, I'm your model, and you become my model, and I desire something that you have, and we begin this escalatory dance of desiring what we perceive the other has. And we can use this in a grounded sense around just something simple as fish. Just, and you wouldn't think that people would want to die, would want to kill one another over a fish. But I've been witness to it. But is it really about the fish at all? That becomes the question. And of course, our analysis constantly to Canada, to senior levels in the Canadian government, it's not about the fish. It's about the need. It's about the gap that the fish fills. Don't think about the fish. Think about the parties and what it is that the fish fulfills with respect to their respective identities. And so it's taking that notion and then deliberately bringing people together, which we have done over multi-day events, who don't like one another. They use words like race-based fishery. They use words like hate and bring them together for an event to deliberately create or move from a structure of what I would call a structure of violence and begin to create a structure of reconciliation. When you say forget about the fish, yeah. it's an interesting, yes. but that means the substance of the dispute never matters? It's always the 
choreography of the conflict? Yes, that would be a short yes. A longer yes would go back to some of Gerard's seminal teachings, seminal writings, is that if they had all the fish they wanted, then hypothetically the, uh, the conflict would de-escalate, would disappear. And I don't believe that because it's not about the fish. So we can see in some years where the fish runs are very big, we should have correspondingly less conflict, but that's not borne out in history. So we think about, is it about the fish and the distribution of fish? Is there enough fish in the pie, so to speak? Or we can also think about, what does it mean to have the fish? When I desire that object that the model has, if I'm a First Nation member in a community along the Fraser River, I'm poor, yet I live on the outside of, of, of an international city like Vancouver, and I'm looking at that object that I perceive that the other has, I desire that, and that sort of, in a reciprocal fashion, is happening in the opposite way. There we have the notion of what drives the conflict in the first place. In his work, Richard McGuigan draws on René Girard's insight that violence is contagious, an escalatory dance, McGuigan calls it, in which the dancers constantly reproduce each other's gestures. The difference that began the fight is erased, and they become more and more the same. To stop the violence, McGuigan says, he must find a way to create a positive contagion in which the combatants begin to mirror each other's peaceful gestures. We will often bring people together of anywhere from 20 to 30 to 200 people into a room together to have a dialogue, to have a conversation about something that has been very difficult to have conversation around, that's been very destructive, that has been full of rage and anger. And we're very intentional about who we are and how we will interact with the crowd, with the people that are there, with the mob, so to speak, and fierce about how they will begin to have this dialogue with one another, how they will use language, how they will assert what it has been for them, using words I instead of you, accepting responsibility for their feelings and their thoughts about what they're going to contribute. So it's deliberately, over time, modeling and using language in a way that we want people to copy, and beginning to model how difference happens within a group. What does that mean, uh, how difference happens within a group? Difference happens through how we find meaning in the dispute that brings us together in the first place, and how we construct the conflict, because the conflict doesn't exist until we say it exists as a group. So we're beginning to construct the story of the conflict. And given the culture that we live in, we construct that in very bifurcated ways. As we've heard from President Bush, you're rather Forrester or Guinness. It's black or it's white. I've got it or you've got it. So it's a language of division, the discourse of division, of distribution, affixed. And so we interject into that a different sort of language, a different way to frame it. And interestingly, wanting to support people who perceive the other to be the bad guy from both perspectives, to helping people understand that all the parties involved in the conflict are caught in the same narrative or the same story that positions them in a conflict to respond in very predictable ways.
Richard McGuigan applies René Girard's insights into the dynamics of violence in the field of conflict resolution. Another presenter at the Colloquium on Violence and Religion has taken Girard's work into the commercial field. Marie-Claude Sicard is a French writer, teacher and consultant who advises companies about their brands. She draws on Girard's work to understand, first of all, what a brand is. What I discovered is that fundamentally a brand is a difference. It's much more easier to explain it in French because we don't use the word brand, we use the word marque. And in French, marque begins to be, for example, a little scar on your forehead. It's a marque. And it is a little difference from the skin. So I always turn back to the basis uh, whenever I meet a very difficult problem. And everybody's speaking about brands and nobody knows what it is, really. I think, first of all, a brand is a difference. But when we look at the world of brands today, what we see is that uh, they erase these differences because each one is trapped in the mechanism of uh, mimetic desire and each one wants what the other one has. For example, if it's the number three in one uh, market, it wants to be number two, number two wants to be number one, etc. And what do they do to uh, obtain the same uh, success? They copy each other. Instead of making the gap between them much larger, so uh, they erase uh, their differences between them and the consumer is totally confused because he, he no longer recognizes uh, one brand from another one. And it's also because it's true that there is a lot of violence in this uh, field uh, of brands because marketing itself is very violent. So that's one of the reasons why I'm, the Girard works was so useful for me to explain to my uh, clients and, and students too. This violence, Marie-Claude Sicard says, has been built into marketing from its very beginnings. After the First World War, propaganda techniques developed during the war crossed over, first into politics and then into the public relations of commercial companies. And marketing, she says, has continued to this day to build on its martial heritage. When you look at marketing textbooks, for example, they have all titles which are linked to uh, war vocabulary, such as uh, marketing warfare or guerrilla war or uh, viral marketing and so on. So uh, they are uh, themselves very violent techniques. I even wrote a very, um, let's say, very hard article against one of uh, our candidates uh, in France uh, for the next presidential election because he uses exactly the same vocabulary saying communication is like a war weapon and I wrote an article saying no you can't use communication as a weapon communication is what occurs between human people it's not a weapon against them you can't say together I communicate with people and they are a target for me. So uh, it was a bit controversial, but um, my, my main idea is uh, communication is not advertising. 
And so I try to help people in the marketing business to understand that they can't together attack people like targets and say that they communicate with them. It's either one thing or the other one. You began by saying that that the Girardian insight that was crucial is seeing that differences are, are eliminated mm. and that people copy each other and mm. and as the differences become smaller in a certain way the violence increases. Mm-hmm. Are you counseling companies against the copying strategy? Yes, of course. Uh, Can you give an example or, or tell me how you're doing that? Well, example, it's a bit difficult because yeah. it's uh, confidential, yes, of course. Sorry. But what I say is, for in example... Yeah, uh, there is a tool which is used by marketing people, which is um, the benchmarking. And it it's uh, um, a way of uh, observing the market, looking at who does what and who is more successful than someone else. And uh, before you do any advertising campaign, you begin by doing a benchmarking like that. The trouble is, this is a very good idea. You have to know your market and look at what uh, people do are doing. The trouble is, once people observe that, for example, some brand has a huge success, instead of saying, okay, they're doing this, so we're going to do something else, they stick to the model. And they say, well, if that one has been successful, I'll be doing the same thing. So uh, instead of being a way of observing where you have maybe a little bit more freedom than someone else and doing something di- really different, uh, with si- which is uh, the logic of a brand, uh, they use benchmarking uh, as a tool to mimic, to, uh, to imitate, to copy the others. So uh, there are no more difference between them. And it was at the beginning a very good idea. You you can't do without it. So, but afterwards it becomes counterproductive. And do are people responsive to your uh, trying to explain how this works? Well, uh, ten years ago, not at all. And now um, they begin to listen because they see that they they are not as successful as they were. Today, the mega brands, the, be- the big brands, are much more su- successful in Asia, for example, than they are in uh, uh, Europe, especially in Europe, where uh, big brands are not as successful as they were, um, let's say, even 15 or 20 years ago. So they begin to wonder why. And I explain it's because there is a crisis, an indifferentiation crisis between brands. So as long as people don't see the difference between them, what do they do? They look for the lowest price. Therefore, the, the brands don't get as much money as they got uh, yesterday. Uh, and I think that the, the one of the solutions is to recreate the differences between brands. Marie-Claude Sicard's work on commercial brands and Richard McGuigan's on conflict resolution show the breadth of possible applications of René Girard's mimetic theory. And these are just two of a number of instances I was given at the Colloquium on Violence and Religion 
of the practical value people find in Girard's thought. The contemporary world can also learn a good deal, I think, from Girard's theory of religion, which I outlined earlier. Many people today look on religion as a cause of violence, and the idea seems to be amply justified if one thinks of terrorism in the name of Islam or the apocalyptic turn that American foreign policy has taken in response. But Girard insists that religion is fundamentally a way of controlling violence. Violence is endemic in human societies, he says, not because of religion, but because of our fantastic power of imitation, which leads us first to fight without limit, and then to suppose that we are, after all, only imitating the other's violence. The violence, in other words, comes from us, and not from the religious and political ideologies with which we justify it. The idea that we will find peace by getting free of religion is, for Girard, a sentimental illusion arising from a deep misunderstanding of religion. He thinks we should rather, as he has, try to understand religion. René Girard has been arguing this position for many years, but his work has been slow to catch on in the academy, nor has it received wide public attention. Some of his friends think that this is a result of prejudice against Girard's confessed Christianity. One friend even speaks of there having been an academic embargo against Girard's ideas. But this may now have begun to change. What is broadly called the return of religion in both politics and philosophy has given Girard's theory a renewed significance. And last December, as another sign of increased acceptance, René Girard was elected to the Académie Française, and invested with the famous green jacket embroidered with olive leaves, which is its ancient emblem. The Academy's membership is restricted to 40, who become known as immortals. Girard graciously acknowledged the honor, but otherwise took a somewhat wry view of his new status. I'm much better accepted now. No one dares tell me to my face that what I'm saying is nonsense. <laughs> so in a sense, it's, it's nice. In another sense, it makes no difference. Can you explain it? There isn't much to explain. I, that evolution is written into a career like mine. You know, It always happens that way. But that's not an explanation. Hmm. What you mean I? you've become a grand old man without anybody actually taking your theory any more seriously than they did before, or? Oh, there are some people who take my yeah. theory quite seriously here, yeah, you know, sure. But it's a small minority, and my change of status in the scholarly world has nothing to do with that. The serious readers are very few and have very little to do, you know, with that change. But there are quite a few here, you know, quite a few. So you look on your presence amongst the immortals with a bemused eye. Yeah, well, but you know, this is a very common occurrence. There is nothing so striking. Yeah, I always felt that it was coming steadily. You have to be a rejected in order to become a grand old man later. <laughs> it's nothing to worry about or attach too much importance to.
On Ideas, you've listened to part one of On Violence and Religion by David Cayley. The program was recorded at the annual meeting of the Colloquium on Violence and Religion at St. Paul University in Ottawa. Our thanks to the conference organizer, Vern Redekop, and his staff for their hospitality and their help. For ideas, Bernie Lucht, Dave Field, and Liz Nage assisted. You can get audio copies of the two programs for $26. Call us at 416-205-7367 and use your credit card. Write to us at Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6, or email ideas at cbc.ca. If you want to find out what's coming up on Ideas, you can sign up for our weekly online newsletter. Just go to our website at cbc.ca slash ideas and click on the link for weekly newsletter. We're now also podcasting Select Ideas programs. For information on how to subscribe to CBC Podcasts, please go to cbc.ca slash podcasting. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht. I'm Paul Kennedy. Coming up on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius Satellite Radio is the hourly news.